creeds and criticism meet. of Reference Podcast. Welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And today we've got a good show for you. <laughs> Alright. The so best show. The best you. the best of shows. The best of shows. And we are not fake news here. Not like the other shows. <laughs> All the other shows, fake news shows. You're saying our shows are fake. All the other shows are fake new shows. (laughs) Um, Just ignore that. You didn't hear that. Um, None of y'all heard that. Um, All right. So here's what we're going to be covering. So first, Nick and I are going to just tell you guys what we've been up to. We have a special announcement as well. Um, We'll cover translation. So history, pros and cons of different translations. Um, In particular, we're going to cover... I'd say primarily the ESV, NASB, the NIV with the TNIV, the CEB, and then we will cover the King James Version and RSV um, just as much as it relates to those things. Um, We're also going to go through some of the controversy, especially around gender-neutral translations. That's primarily between the ESV and NIV, TNIV. Uh And, well, well, you'll get to there. Um, and then also we'll go through some of the contested gender-related verses. As they appear in various translations and yeah. all that. So we'll go through some of that. Um, and then we're going to have a question and answer. So we have a really good listener question. And then um, Nick found kind of a interesting... Uh... I found someone giving his perspective on the NRSV. And we might say translations that are gender-inclusive that I think is perhaps representative of a lot of different um, modern Christians or, or Christians within the conservative sphere and how they understand Bible translations and what they view as acceptable or not. But we'll get to that point. Yeah, there we go. And I think that'll help kind of maybe put where a lot of us are at, even if it's not necessarily the most accurate understanding right. or scholarly understanding. At least we all come from that perspective, at least sometimes. Or not, yeah, not all of us, but yeah, there's, anyway, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. All right, so what have we been up to? I have finished now the book on Christian perfection. Uh, it's been submitted to the Whipfinstock people for, I think, copy editing and stuff like that. I'm not sure. Basically, it's out of my hands, and they just send it back to me. He finished it, so, so yeah. that's... Yay! So the manuscript on my end is done. And so uh, I'm not going to talk too much about it. We'll talk more about it once it gets closer. But I'm happy about it, and I'm happy it's done. I'm very happy it's done. Yeah, and it's going to be from, a, I guess, a Wesleyan perspective but more of a a, according to an american baptist i don't know yeah i mean you know i don't view a lot of wesleyan theological distinctives as contradictory agreed and i actually make the case at least it's not a huge case but at several points that i think my reformed brothers and sisters could actually affirm this view Uh, i don't think it's i think it's a wesleyan distinctive but i don't think it's christian perfection we're talking about perfection that's what the the book's called traditionally traditionally entire sanctification and stuff like that uh, but I don't think it's something that Reformed theo- uh, theologians uh, couldn't affirm either. And so I try to present it in a case, in a sense where all Christians could affirm this, 
uh, regardless of their views of Reformed theology or Arminian theology or all those sorts of fun things. So I try to be a little inclusive about that. Yeah, and to basically saying it's a view that's on the table um, and not something to be afraid of, um, mm-hmm. even if you don't ultimately agree with it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's my first book. I don't At this point, I'm just happy to be done and to move on <laughs> and talk briefly about eschatology and what it relates to perfection and gender. Uh, so there's a little bit of that. So this podcast does have a bit of an impact on the book. So, But you'll have, I'll talk more about it once it comes out. Uh, two other podcasts I've been working on, the Synergist podcast uh, with Thomas. I hear it's the most man-centered podcast out there. Ma- most man-centered theology podcast on the oh. internet. Uh, and so we're good at going through uh, Christian theology, just kind of a, a base level. What is the Christian faith? You know, Instead of calling it a systematic theology, it's just uh, Christian theology, various distinctives and all those sorts of things. And then we started a podcast at the church where I'm an associate pastor at. Uh, My senior pastor and I uh, started a podcast called the Fear Without Faith podcast, and it's on iTunes, and we are still working out all the kinks and all that, but it's more of a conversational podcast that's centered on exploring uh, our faith without fear and cultivating curiosity and being willing to ask questions, you know, so we've talked about uh, what kind of Baptists we are. We're an American Baptist and what that means. We've also talked about uh, faith and science that's coming up in episode three. Then we have two episodes coming out in October on Dallas Willard and spiritual formation from people who knew Dallas Willard personally. So it's not as scholastic or nerdy. Well, actually, no, it's just as nerdy, but it's, (laughs) yeah, we're we're a very open church. We're a curious church. We're not afraid of questions and art and all those sorts of things. So stuff like that is is fundamental to our church. A lot of artists, a lot of teachers, we have biology professors that come to our church so it's it's a very diverse congregation and very um i'd say one of this congregation in particular tends to be highly educated across the board very highly educated in their fields yes yeah and so yeah those are the things uh, i've been working on and developing and yeah it's been a and going through ordination yeah going through ordination as well that's that's out of my hands at this point i I turned in all my paperwork and (laughs) now i'm just kind of in the waiting process of when do i get called to go do what so yeah my dad um has horror stories from his ordination years um yeah i think the guy um for some reason didn't like him and had him recite all the books of bible and laying out each individual theme like for each one from start to finish off the fly and I mean, it's not necessarily something that I think should be like a gatekeeping thing for ordination. It's just kind of an odd. Oh, I know exactly what yeah. I'd say to that if someone asked me, I'd be like, no. <laughs> well, he had to, and he he started going through. He said he got through it just fine. Um, but uh, Lee McDonald, who's I, I'd say been an informal mentor for me growing up, and has um, really contributed to my um, love of education, higher education. Um, he uh, directly mentored my dad. Um, as a pastor, he was the senior pastor. Um, he basically ended up, I, if I'm remembering correctly, interjecting and saying, there were other distinctives that my dad got grilled on too. And he, he interjected and said, um, American Baptists have already made conclusions on this, you know, move yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just kind of one of those interesting things. So it's always nice to have someone go to bat for you, mm-hmm. but I'm sure you'll be fine. Oh, we'll see. If I just keep my attitude in check. Yeah. And then eventually I'll probably be ordained, but I had enough to deal with for a while um, and we get there. What about you? What do you got going on? All right. So um, I've had a lot going on, Um, some very good and some not so good. I would say one of the not so good, I was kept up. I'm just going to use this as an opportunity to complain. 
I was kept up by a cat last night. Well, technically last morning. So he has done this two early morning Sunday mornings in a row. Last time it started at 12.30 a.m. This time it started at 1 a.m. Just he wanted to snuggle and he wouldn't let me sleep. So I didn't get any sleep. So anyway, just wanted to say that. He doesn't care at all. He's stretching and looking out the window. Um, but yeah, on the plus side, um, I had a CBE conference presentation paper. So I, I actually gave a couple of papers for a while. I don't know if I've told you guys about them. If you saw our bonus episode um, last, you may recognize some of this. Um, so at the CBE conference, I gave um, basically a talk called Eve as a Type of Christ, Reframing Power, Identity, and Gender in First Timothy 2. Um, I also presented at the University of Aberdeen. Um, I, I believe that was back in May. Um, and my paper was Re-Imaging Power, Paul's Narrative Soteriology in the Place of Eve. Um, also, I got through um, turning in a bunch of things for my PhD. It's kind of like the first year rite of passage where you give a sample chapter of your dissertation and basically a plan of action. Like, here's everything else I'm going to cover and here's how much time I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> and you basically have to sell them on that you can argue properly and that you st still belong in the program. And then you get grilled um, end of October by some sort of panel. So um, I'm still waiting for that part. But that was quite a feat. <laughs> I will say that, um, especially with some of the other stuff. Good stuff. So I'll get to that later. On the downside, too, and this has unfortunately been... Um, why we, again, I've said this before, why we haven't had so many episodes out, but it's improving. Um, I do still struggle with PTSD, and so that makes it hard to do things that I normally love. So there's been that, and unfortunately, I'm also unemployed and looking for work. So if you guys have any ideas in the Inland Empire, let me know. Yes, please. That'd be fun. Yeah, but I almost feel like there was, we're missing something. Well, we got a cat. We do. That keeps me up. He doesn't care. He's still looking out the window at his friends. <sighs> Seriously, he was so cuddly. We say that like it's a bad thing. It was last well, night. <laughs> well, I'm having... Uh, we forgot to introduce what we're drinking. I am drinking a wheat whiskey from uh, Bernheim. And it's really smooth. I love how you and, enunciated and, the wheat. <laughs> it's a wheat whiskey from Will Wheaton. Uh, it is Gosh. tasty. Uh, very caramelly. Lots of toffee notes. Almost a bit of dried fruit. It's very tasty. Probably pair really well with like a ginger ale, but you wouldn't want to waste your ginger ale because this is amazing. Would you like some? That's okay. You sure? I'm, I'm sure. Are you sure? You don't. You love whiskey. I've got my grapes that your mother grew in her yard. Mm, my mother's wine grapes. What are they called again? My mother's grapes. I don't know. Actually, know what they're called. I forget. They had a particular name, but they taste like um, I'm gonna say Baptist. Baptist <laughs> communion juice. Yeah. You sure you don't want wheat whiskey? I, I'm fine. You should be able to have it, right? Stop it. That's so mean. All right, so good news. Um, I'm actually 15 weeks pregnant now. Holy crap, you are? Nick, oh, stop okay. that. <laughs> yeah. Who's so, the dad? Oh my gosh, don't even. Oh, okay, fine. fine don't fine. even. Yep, 15 weeks. Do we know? We haven't, we don't know if it's boy or girl yet, do we? No, we don't. We don't, okay. Yeah, that was, yeah, we've known for a while. So, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, um, I'll just say this. Um, I'm fine. Um, I was nauseated out of my mind for the first 10 weeks. and I mean, it was awful. She would keep me up all night. Just Oh, you poor thing. I know, just the worst. I, I couldn't get any sleep. 
you know, I require 13 to 14 hours of sleep a day. To make mm-hmm. matters worse, too, I, um, for some, all of a sudden, all meat was on the no list. Like, I just felt like throwing up anytime any kind of meat and we were in texas barbecue and i wanted i was looking forward to the texas barbecue but Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it was all on the no list and yep that was awful don't worry i had enough for all three of us yeah i also had to like get through my (laughs) i had to get through the rest of my phd work nauseated on my mind which Mm -hmm. i did Mm -hmm. um so it can be done guys Um, and also I had to do a, figure out a CBE presentation and I ended up basically doing it the last minute. Um, cause I just was nauseated out of my mind and had to do my, um, the rest of my PhD work. So all my time budgeted, um, spent with me in bed, like constantly. And then like basically wanting to cry over my studies cause I had to get it out while I was like horribly sick. Mm-hmm. But yeah, basically anyway, that aside, yeah, like if you're pregnant, you can do a PhD program. You can. Um, if you're as nauseated as I was, it'll be horrible for a while, but whatever. Like, honestly, so many of us just get through life, you know, so even do, when we're sick. Do you think there's a certain maybe regimen on that? Like, does, does eating certain things, drinking certain things, having certain things done, certain oh, activities? Oh, well, trial and error. Um, <laughs> oh, that'll do it. And like copious amounts of like Google searching, um, it did help to have like little bits, like little crackers constantly. Little crackers, okay. Um, and like eating habits change. So like getting like really hungry all of a sudden and having to eat. No weird food cravings, I would say that. Um, no, you, no, 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 not weird, but yeah, just. You, you texted me while I was at church saying, I need a hamburger. Yeah, so this was this was very early. That was very early on. Um, soon after, again, no meat. Like, yep. that was like the last time. But for a week straight, all you wanted were hamburgers. Yeah. And I kept bringing hamburgers home, and it was kind of fun. Actually, no, it was just one day. Anyway, exaggeration. But basically, I needed more protein. Um, I would say the first 10 weeks, which isn't surprising because it's a key development time. Um, and when I couldn't stand meat anymore, it was like having a lot of pinto beans and actually eggs were okay for me so which is weird because you normally don't like eggs yeah but i don't like hate them either so it's not a big deal yeah but yeah some little reversals but nothing like weird that i wanted just things i normally like just different amounts more things weren't on the no list like chopped basil it's like icky chopped basil yeah that was weird that made no sense yeah freshly chopped basil was just unbearable like nope not putting that on my pizza not doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, it's been good. And now it's translation time. Woo. Yay! Well, more like talking about translations than mm. we're not going to be doing our own here. No, no, no. No, not yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've got a ways to go. Um, so, first, like, some of the brief history of what is this? Here in this podcast, we're concerned about more gender-oriented things. And specifically, we have in mind some of the controversy over gender-neutral language and how certain um, Bible passages are translated. Here's the thing. Um, some of these discu- none of these discussions happen in a vacuum. There's just a whole history here that I'm going to have to just abbreviate because it'll help you kind of understand who's who in this um, discussion and where people are coming from. Let's go all the way back to the King James Version, 1611. Yay, he persecuted Baptists. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and again, this is, well, um, King James Version um, competed with the Geneva Bible, um, which is commonly used by the Puritans. 
It's basically, so even the King James version isn't really done in a vacuum. Before that, we had like the Tyndale Bible, the Bishop's Bible. Even then, it's supposed to, all of these, um, all these translations, what they're trying to do is give you a, something that accurately represents scripture, meaning it's under, it's, it's true to what the original to their knowledge conveyed. And there's a whole discussion there, by the way, um, which I won't get into. Um, but then also, how do you make that understandable to people? King James Version, in particular, did a little bit more. Um, it started to, it was trying to function as the authoritative state Bible, essentially. So James came to the throne, 1603. And a lot of the people involved are from Oxford, Westminster, um, and Cambridge. So it's basically an Anglican church authorized version is what it is. So yeah, and they wanted to have a Bible that was true to the original language and that was understandable, you know, go figure. And years later, um, here, I mean, here's what happened. I mean, it it was the dominant Bible for um, two and a half centuries with no revisions. But eventually people found more manuscripts, ones that were more ancient, um, and biblical studies department um, developed more. And so people started to realize that they needed an update to the King James. Yep. But again, it's been used so long and it's the authoritative Bible. So it's the authorized version, especially for the Church of England. So you can see why maybe um, it took so long to get there. So the ERV, which is the English Revised Version. ERV, English Revised Version. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'm sure, I think it's 1881, 1885. Um, I think those are, you can kind of correct me on the dates if you want to. That's the new one that was authorized with that same Church of England years and years and years later. Um, that's more, you know, obviously British. The ASV basically is kind of the same thing. It's more of an American variant. Okay. So here's where it gets a little bit more relevant. I know, boring. But the RSV um, is what kind of came next. So 1937, and that's coming off of the ASV. So they want to keep up with modern scholarship too, but they want to retain the qualities of the King James Version. So you notice everyone's kind of, you know, going back to the King James still, especially the sentiment that, you know, it originally started with, interestingly enough. This one, though, was endorsed by Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox, and internationally. So again, it's it's now expanded beyond just kind of the Anglican Church, even though it's um, still tied to, the you know, what's authorized um, by that church and what's important. Um, so... They want to preserve the best of the English Bible as it's known through the years. The thing is, they want to preserve the tradition of the King James Version, but they don't want certain messages within the Bible to be disguised by archaic language. So they had to try to find a balance. So that's kind of what they try to do later. There's the new revived version, the NRSV. So anyway, here's where it gets interesting. The ESV. The English Standard Version. Yes. That's the one that we're going to be talking about a lot here, um, is basically they were alarmed. So the NRSV came about and especially had some gender inclusive language, as were a lot of translations, you know, after that. Um, And really because English language was changing. Mm -hmm. And we were also realizing in the original language, maybe a generic he or him or brothers would actually be inclusive of um, even especially even in the context itself, women too. Mm-hmm. And so by translating it that way kind of disguised the meaning. 
And people got the wrong impression where years ago they wouldn't have. The ESV, people that started that were a little upset, though, that the number one, the RSV, which is a much loved version on its, its, in its own right, was going to go out of print. Mm-hmm. So that was one of their big things. But even more key, the discussion for it started in 1997. This is the ESV for the 1997 and yeah. ESV 1997. And this is, and we're particularly talking about having a translation built, I think, off of the RSV. This is where that particular part of the discussion started. That's by James Dobson from Focus on the Family. And interestingly, too, guess who else? Our, our friend Wayne Grudem was heavily involved, too. Um, and it's also interesting, it's not controlled by the Anglican Church. So remember, with the King James Version, it's the authorized version. Authorized by who? Well, the king and the church. <laughs> you know, the ESV, who's it authorized by? That's kind of interesting in itself. So I don't know. Um, we'll just go on from there and come back to that. Um, just keep that in your mind. Um, but yeah, it's not controlled by the Anglican Church. And it actually starts, and they denied this for a while, but there's tons of email and verbal records of evidence like of this discussion. It started because it was in response to the gender-neutral controversy um, and other issues people had that were related to that with the NIV. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, more specifically, they said that they wanted to prune evangelicals from reliance on the NIV. That was their goal. Hmm. So... They didn't like that the NIV was so widespread, or TNIV especially, yeah, the t- later. The, yeah, the TNIV, which um, is now out of print in the United States for the most part. The, t- the original TNIV. Yeah, is. we'll get that into the controversy later. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not so dire as it sounds, but we'll, we'll get there. So anyway, that's the history there. Um, the NASB, um, also, if you're going back in time, so remember the RSV is what influenced the ESV, and before that was the ASV which is the Briti- the English, or sorry, the American version that's kind of also coming off of the King James version. So the NASB tries to be also, it's kind of similar to the ESV in terms of what it purports. It's supposed to be influenced by the principles of the ASV. So just keep that in mind. NIV is its own fresh translation. So it's not coming off of a state-sanctioned translation. Um, so we'll, we'll get there, but... Yeah, so there's a good overview, I hope, um, or at least a decent one. Or at least the major English translations that we now use today, where they find their parents, basically. Yeah. All right. So now I know we'll get we'll get into the more fun stuff. I I promise. So now some of the pros and cons, and just telling you a little bit more about each of these like little translations. All right. So the ESV. I mean, it's called the English Standard Version. Sound a little reminiscent of what it wants to be with the King James. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's standard. It's the English standard version. So that's what the King James was, the standard for all English speakers before. Um, so some people have said it's a presumptuous title. Um, I think it kind of is. It's a little grandiose. Especially because it wasn't standardized by anyone back then. Hmm. Um, I think it kind of informally became that um, because it was very well marketed. But yeah, so interesting about the ESV, it's not a fresh translation per se. It's 92% of it still the unrevised RSV. So basically, and again, a lot of Bible, trans- this isn't a sneaky thing. Um, a lot of Bible translations, they use another translation as their base text. And then according to new um, scholarly material, they update it. Um, so all these translations we're going to talk about today, even though we're going to be kind of unhappy with the ESV, 
Um, all of them are very well backed up with scholarship. Um, so I want to just say that this is not a bunch of people that don't know anything doing a bunch of random things. Like, you know, they're trying to use the best, most up-to-date manuscripts available. They're trying to balance, well, not necessarily always balance, but hold the two things in mind that it can be understandable English, but also true to conveying what the um, original language is meant. And some of them don't use the term original languages. Some of them are more of an emphasis on, I guess, the original text, which is a little bit more nuanced. But anyway, we won't get into that. The ESV um, looks to do a literal translation of the Bible. Um, it was released in 2001. It's, again, not, it's 92% the, you know, RSV. Here's the translation philosophy they give. They say formal equivalence, which is word for word, literal, functional equivalence, thought for thought, meanings, and optimal equivalence, balance between accuracy and ease of reading. So they put, they called all of those to be important, but they try, they really go for the literal. And the problem here is there's no, that's a very contested idea because there is no one-to-one. There really isn't for each language. So maybe a better way to put it would be it's more wooden. Yeah, wooden meeting, you know, I mean, if they wanted to make it literal, uh, a literal translation, just in terms of Greek sequence, you'd have a bunch of nouns and adjectives, then you'd have an, a verb. You know, in terms of just, you know, if you It'd be unintelligible and you, it wouldn't actually tell you, you anything. You yeah. couldn't read it. it, it you'd, and, you know, you, you wouldn't have, you'd have implied verbs. You'd have implied uh, pronouns. You'd have all these sorts of things. Yeah. So the, the idea of a, a purely literal translation is, is you can't read it. Yeah. Well, and I don't even know if it's even possible because any word is an approximation. And I don't want, don't get too meta about it. Like, you know, it's not like, oh no, I can't read any of these words on the page and I can't understand anything. No, no, no. Like we're, we're getting into like being very nitty gritty here. Yep. Um, we're just saying that they're overstating what they can and can't do. And especially like, again, like I, I think a lot of the strength of the ESV really comes from a RSV, frankly. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to put that out there. Um, with some good, so with some good updates and some not so good ones. Um, here's their oversight committee: um, Clint Arnold from Biola, and these are I'm not listing everyone, but Wayne Grudem's on there, J.I. Packer, um, Vern Poitras. You can kind of guess, you know, what kind of um, audience, especially with focus on the family in the background, um, this is appealing to. Um, other ones were like I think a, like World. And directly CBMW, that's Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, SBC Sunday School Board were, and folks on the family were huge proponents of this translation or revision as well. You know, there's that. <laughs> I'm just going to leave you with this real quick. Um, if you want to read more, um, go to the Gospel Coalition's article, um, Nine Things You Should Know About the ESV Bible. Um, Missio Alliance also has the three unmistakable examples of gender politics in the new um, ESV translation and Scott McKnight, the new stealth translation. There was a big controversy, which we'll cover later on that. And that's all I'll say for now for that one. NASB, basically the, I'd say the it, 1971, but the uh, most up-to-date is 1995. Um, it's from the Lockman Foundation, which is a nonprofit. They, again, like they want to keep, retain those ASV principles, you know, going back to the King James. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes sense. Um, they're looking to do the most literally accurate English translation from the original languages. They want to discover what the original text says word for word. You know, so that's, it's the same kind of sentiment. 
um, without some of the weird politics, I think, entirely involved. Yeah. They're kind of, basically, it's a bunch of nerds. Okay. A bunch of Bible nerds um, got together and did the most wooden translation ever that a lot of people hate the English rendering of for them and actually the ESV. Um, But they helped you with a bunch of footnotes, too. So that's kind of cool. Because sometimes they couldn't, like, get some of their idioms. And so they made them into English equivalents and gave you a good footnote to figure it out. Yep. They also um, helpfully put italics in so that you can tell when words are added um, to help you with meaning. So, for instance, if I'm remembering correctly, in Ephesians 5, um, 22, um, the word submit is in, ita- is in italics because it's a later... It's it's added by them to help you understand what's being referred to, rightly so. But it's also signaling that's taking the verb from verse 21. Yep, they do. Wives, italics, be subject, you know, the normal to your own husbands as to the Lord. Very good. Yeah, so I I actually, okay, so I I actually love the NASB in many ways. Um, It's horrible for some of the passages we're going to be covering, but I actually like them in many ways. Yeah, they also took some of their English renderings to a team of educators and pastors. So they're decidedly not oriented towards interpretation. So they try to not make a lot of interpretive decisions for you. Very good. I like that um, in some ways. Let's see. They wanted, let's see, here's their tagline too. Readable, trusted, literal, and timeless. I don't know about that, but um, their fourfold aim is to be true to the original language, um, grammatically correct, understandable, and to give the Lord Jesus Christ proper place. um, And so having no personality entering the work. How does that exactly happen? But, you know, it's, it's something they're striving for. And again, I, I do think it shows through um, in some instances and not so much in others because um, we're human beings and part of translation is also necessarily interpretation, unfortunately. Um, and that's just how language works because um, it's not all... Um, anyone who's studied other foreign languages will know this. Even if you studied Spanish or anything, you know, it's not going to be an exact one-for-one match and you have to make some decisions. There's that on the NASB. Let's see if I can find... Oh, something else about them that I think you'd like. Um, It's mainstream evangelical, too. Wheaton, Ted's, Dallas, Talbot, Fuller, APU. Um, Even people from Cal State or Bob Jones. So, again, very... I'd say Bob Jones is fundamentalist, but I'd say it's all across the board mainstream, mostly. Um, And denominationally, you have American Baptist, Southern Baptist, Presbyterian Methodist, Nazarene, different people... Um, so again, much better representation um, in terms of evangelical scholarship. Across the board. Yeah, ESV was a very much more narrow um, evangelical scholarship. This one seems to be a lot more broadly evangelical. Some of the people involved, um, Thomas uh, is it Finley, um, Charles Feinberg, um, J. Barton Payne. So I think that's, that's um, Payne's that, dad. Yep, that's Phil's dad. Yeah. Um, Moises Silva and George Townsend. So, you know, some a good lineup. Oh, and random, um, James White was a consultant. Cool. And uh, Robert Sosi was also, I, I remember him briefly from my days at Viola. It's also um, on the um, original and the updated. So now to go to the some of the other ones. So I'll just say the NIV. So, okay, um, basically, um, Howard Long was an um, engineer, actually, from Seattle um, that found he couldn't share someone the scriptures that was outside the church, and he said, we needed to get a translation. Um, This is back in 1955. Um, So, again, like, the the Bible translation that most people were using around this time were probably the 
um, RSV or ASV. I mean, we still have the RSV. Or and King James, yeah. We have the RSV in our church at, at First Baptist Redlands. So yeah. we, that's a translation that's still beloved and used today. Yeah. The thing is, too, that... And I, okay, yeah. So basically, that's what... He wanted to faithfully capture the Word of God in contemporary English. It's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so this ended up being a cross-denominational movement. And it was especially headed by the Christian Reformed Church and National Association of Evangelicals. They did not basically go off of a existing... Um, in translation, but start basically did something fresh, even though, you know, they always like consult other things and other people. Yeah, it's like when you do an yeah. exegetical stuff, you always look at other translations just to see how far off the reservation you've gone. Yeah, and like the later ESV, um, they tried to use the best manuscripts available in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. They had a very interesting like ruling process too. Each book was assigned a new translation team. <laughs> Um, so for each book of the Bible, there were two lead translators, two consultants, and maybe one English-style consultant. Then it got sent to another team of five Bible scholars to review the work and complete the original biblical text. Uh, and it's supposed to com- sorry, compare it to the original biblical text. Then each book has gone to a general committee of eight to 12 scholars who um, basically got feedback from outside critics. That's good. You don't yeah. see that with some of the other ones. You're not looking for outsiders to weigh in. Yeah, I can't have um, the Presbyterians reading your Bible and telling you where you're wrong. So then they tested the samples with pastors, students, and lay people. They were also, the NIV was becoming the top gender-exclusive Bible. And so they basically decided to, along with their other updates that were planned, decided that they were going to also you know, match some of the gender-inclusive language of the other ones, like the NRSV did. Especially, when, basically, always when the Greek and the Hebrew referred to both genders. So, I mean, that makes sense. Like, it now it's brothers. That's a, that's a um, cultural convention, but it's ref- it actually, in the text, refers to both men and women. They're like, okay, we'll just make sure the reader knows that. Yeah. Um, so, makes sense. Everyone was doing it. Um, well, not everyone, but enough people. So, um, that's why they decided to do the TNIV. Yep. Which was a big mistake, which we'll get through. Um, in terms of marketing, and more it got sabotaged, I think. I, I would agree. But anyway, it, it's, I think it's fine in the end. Here's the interesting thing about this translation committee, though. It's mostly complementarian. Um, it is mostly complementarian. There, there were a few, a, a very small handful of women, though, that are included, which is good. Um, Janine Brown, Habila Dalmara, she actually spoke at the CBE conference. And then Karen Jobes. Really good lineup, but again, like just only three women. And lastly, we have the CEB, um, which is funded by the Church Resources Development Corporation. And it's um, broad denominational publishing. By the way, the NIV um, lineup in terms of who's leading and um, translating it is also extremely broad. I was looking at that and yeah, I was very impressed with their um, lineup too. But this one um, with the CEB... Um, it's a new translation, so it's also not an update. Um, and it's looking to make the Bible accessible to a broad range of people. And they basically worked with 77 reading groups of more than a dozen different um, denominations to ensure a natural reading. Wow. And actually, I would say in terms of using plain English, the CEB is definitely the best on that. They use a team of broad scholarship, so men and women. But again, women are still underrepresented. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. And it's not just that the CEB... Or the NIV are just mean, horrible people. Um, yeah. You know, the issues are very complex, um, even though I would say there probably could have been more women on that. Um, so they had 120 translators, and out of that, 20 were women. So already many more. 
um, than others. Um, there were 24 faith-based you know, traditions and all coming from America, Africa, Asia, Europe, and even like Latin America. So, you know, good spread internationally too. The board of editors, um, Joel Green, um, who used to be uh, my mentor from Fuller Seminary, David De Silva, and then Cynthia Westfall, who we mm-hmm. talked about in our last bonus episode. Yep. Um, she's amazing. So the translators, um, there's lots of different translators. I'll just pick out a couple names that you might know. Mike Bird and Richard Hayes is on there. But yeah, there's a lot of other names like um, Christopher Hayes, Richard Hess, um, Tremper Longman, Luke Timothy Johnson. Michael Gorman, John Golden Gay. Yeah, good lineup. Good lineup. Leanne Jervis at Wycliffe College. Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty, it's a it's a much bigger lineup than a lot of other places already. Yeah. And high-powered people, too. Like, people that have actually done groundbreaking work. Like, Nathan McDonald at, uh, I think it's at St. Andrews, I want to say. Or he was at Cambridge for a while. So, a lot, a lot of true experts in their fields, which is really cool. Yeah, and I think I didn't say some of the cool people that were on the NIV committee. Because, I mean, they deserve mention, too. Um, Douglas Moo's on there. Um, Craig Blomberg, Janine Brown, Richard Hess, um, David Instone Brewer, Bill Mounts. Um, and Bill Mounts was also, I think, be previously on the ESV. I think so. Um, and honorary, they have um, Gordon Fee, Karen Jobes, um, Richard Longnecker. Very good. So again, you know, all, all of these people like are notable that we've mentioned are notable. And you no, know, basically these aren't just a bunch of people that don't know what they're doing. And so the controversy came about when we'll use the TNIV as the example. That's kind of the the whipping boy for a lot of people. And it came out, and as we mentioned, it had some differences concerning gender language. Some people say the phrase gender neutral or gender inclusive. There is a distinction between the two, but for our purposes, we'll just talk about gender neutral language. Yeah, because that's what they... We're saying the controversy is. Right. And so, for example, uh, a lot of translations will use man, you know, uh, God made man in his own image in Genesis 1, whereas the TNIV and others will say something like God made humankind or human beings or something like that. Yeah. And people used to, if you say um, God made, and even now, if you say God made man in um, his image, we still kind of know what that means, but it used to be so regular before that no one would even think, you know, that, oh, women aren't included course it presupposes some things you know but you know about women and man being yeah anyway it made in the image of god yeah but and it was uh or exclusively so yeah right and so but those are sorts of things you learn in greek or in seminary that you just kind of look at adelphoi brothers and sisters and you just kind of go oh you you want everyone to see this if it's written to everyone yeah uh to understand that this is something to them that they are included in this it's yeah. not you know giving primacy to someone or something like that and so yeah it, it is assumed so um primacy of um masculinity is assumed in the culture but right. there's a key difference between what um someone's trying to communicate and basically the cultural atmosphere, I'm going to say, of, of mm-hmm. something. That said. <laughs> so the, the controversy raised around the TNIV and uh, the, the main, and the supporters of the TNIV, and this bears repeating because there's complementarians all over the board with this. So for example, um, Mark Strauss is a complementarian. I think he's at Bethel Seminary in San Diego. And uh, he wrote a big old response to the ESV and their use of gendered language, or their misuse, perhaps, or non-use of gendered language. He's a complementarian. And so, this, and you know, D.A. Carson, who's not known for being uh, an egalitarian mind when it comes to women in ministry, was supportive of the TNIV. Yeah. Um, 
Erwin, Erwin McManus, who's out here, uh, who's a famous, uh, I think he's Southern Baptist pastor, yeah. uh, is that. Uh, Peter Furler of the Newsboys, you know, so shout out to my Newsboys friends. And Ben Witherington, John, John Stott was a complimentarian, may he sleep in peace. Wait, was Ben Witherington at the time? He's a supporter of the TNAV, yeah. No, a uh, complimentarian, though? No, John Stott was a complimentarian. Okay, yeah, yeah. Ben Witherington, right. not, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's mainstream um, support. Um, again, most of the committee are complimentarians. Mm-hmm. Most translators on it are complementarians, and then they're doing things that's not out of the realm. So the RSV, you know, gave way to the NRSV, you know, which also made adjustments, you know, according to language. And again, it wasn't ch- quote changing the Greek and Hebrew. That's not what was happening. Yeah, we're. That's a misrepresentation. It is, and here I have uh, the following resolution against the TNIV was adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention at their meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, June 11 through 12 in 2002. So this is the Southern Baptist take, which you can say is probably representative of the uh, response to the TNIV. They say, and I'll read the whole thing and make comments as I go through, or we'll make comments. So, quote, Whereas many Southern Baptist pastors and lay people have trusted and used the new the NIV translation to the greatest benefit of the kingdom, and whereas... Boy, they, I really hate the way they read this. Whereas, the International Bible Society and Zondervan Publishing House have begun to publish a new translation of the Bible known as today's New International Version. And whereas, Southern Baptists repeatedly have affirmed our commitment to the full inspiration and authority of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 15 through 16. And in 1997, urged every Bible publisher and translation group to resist, quote, gender-neutral translation of Scripture. Stopping already, they're not telling us why. I want to, if, if I'm reading this for the first time, and I'm not, I'm looking at this going, why, why, why the heat to this? Why the, why the fire? I want to know, I want you to tell me why. And, Do you want me to tell you what Blondberg says? Uh, no, let, let me finish reading all, <laughs> all this, right. just so we give everyone the fair context. <laughs> okay. Whereas the TNIV makes significant changes to the NIV, largely in the area of gender language, that's not accurate in terms of gender, uh, they don't make, uh, in terms of gendered language in the sense of... Um, gender inclusion that's based on understanding of the historical context of the New Testament and Old Testament. So they're already kind of skewing it and quoting them, continuing. Whereas, although it is possible for Bible scholars to disagree about translation methods or which English words best translate the original languages, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. So this is already... Yeah. They say the TNIV has gone beyond acceptable translation standards. And whereas this translation alters the meaning of hundreds of verses, most significantly by erasing gender-specific details which appear in the original language. Already, that's actually not true. You can see that there's a political edge to this versus an actual translational methodology. So, here we go, continuing. Whereas the translators erased... Notice the hyperbolic language. Erased these gender-specific details in two ways. <laughs> they eliminated gender, gender-specific terms changing father to parent, son to child, and brother to fellow believer, man to mortals. I'm, I'm assuming all men are mortals. Uh, humans or those, and he to they, so that gender-specific meanings are eliminated. And two, they added gender-specific readings that are not found in the original text, such as changing brother to brother or sister, so that any gender-specific emphasis of the passage is eliminated. So notice they are already being misleading. They actually are not representing what actual translational method uh, they just simply disagree and with. And actually, um, I'll show later in the First Timothy section, they're actually um, they're, they're not consistent on this and how they apply it. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll just leave it at that for now. And so, a few more. Whereas this translation, that is the TNIV, obscures significant biblical references to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ by altering references to father, son, brother, and man. 
already my first thought is I want to know what you actually mean by that because all this at this point I see mere assertion. Yeah, and again, it goes back to um, function. How does language function? So, again, if um, brother is being used um, is actually and you can show is being used for men and women in a group. What then? What is brother? Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So again, it's what can you think of an English equivalent where situationally it can mean different things? Not off the top of my head. Okay, no. well, actually, guys. Okay, guys. hey, guys. Yeah. Hey, guys, don't leave me. You know. You know, am I saying literally, hey, only you males um, don't leave me? Or am I yeah. referring to a group of people? Mm-hmm. So there we go. There's there's one kind of example that you can think of. Um, so, you know, are you, do you want to take it and say, if someone's, like, trying to translate me, I don't know, years and years, years later... Are they going to be like, Allison wanted to draw attention to all the males in the group? You know, no. Um, or she just wanted the group that was leaving her to, I don't know, not leave her. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, they continue to show their ignorance of actual method. Whereas this translation obscures biblical references to the personal relationship of the individual believers to Christ by changing masculine third person singular pronouns, he and him, to gender, to plural gender neutral pronouns, they and them, now. And it's just like, how does that actually do what you think it does? What is the damage being wrought by this translational method that you clearly don't yeah, like? Yeah, and not understanding like how new grammar, yeah. how, how language functions at all. Yeah, and so that resolved that the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, Missouri, twelve <laughs> June eleven through twelve two thousand two, expressed profound disappointment as if there are parents. I am so disappointed. You disappointment with the International Bible Society and Zondervan Publishing House for this inaccurate translation of God's inspired Scripture. And be it further resolved that, consistent with the Bible translation resolution adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention in 1997, we respectfully request that the agencies, boards, and publishing arms of the Southern Baptist Convention refrain from using this translation in our various publications and from using it in printing co- in printing copies or portions of copies. And be it further resolved, boy, they just can't just resolve yeah. this. That we respectfully request that Lifeway not make this inaccurate translation available for sale in their bookstores, and be it finally resolved, thank God, that we cannot commend the TNV to Southern Baptists or to the larger Christian community. Dun, dun, dun. So notice the triumphalism, the ignorance, the anger, the fundamentalism at large. Because this, the best part about this is this does not represent complementarianism. This represents... A very narrow stream within evangelicalism. A politicized stream within yeah, evangelicalism. Yeah, that has gotten it very powerful, um, has a lot of money... Mm-hmm. And um, mutually reinforces one another. Yep. And so this is not a complementarian egalitarian issue. This is linguist- linguistically informed people. Well. Well, I'm D.A. Carson and all these other folks are big on the TNIV and liked it and used it and endorsed it. Like. Well, here's the reality. And right. I'm going to go ahead and switch to Blomberg. Because um, okay. Craig Blomberg, you know, as you remember, was part of the NIV. And again, he's, he's complementarian. He says that... And he... So, okay, I'm reading from his Can We Still Believe the Bible? And I'll just tell you about this book really quickly. He goes through different things. You know, are all the manuscripts or copies of the Bibles hopelessly corrupt? Uh, Don't don't, don't some of these issues rule out biblical inerrancy? And then again, number three, especially, can we trust any of our translations of the Bible? So this is a good book overall to read. And I'm reading from chapter three on page 113. This is what he says. It is clear that their biggest motivation is intolerance towards anything that could possibly empower the evangelical egalitarians rather than concern for what best clarifies the meaning of the text. That's what he says. In order to own egalitarians, they're willing to basically destroy an English translation. Yeah, because here's the thing. um, Christians for Biblical Equality quite like the 
um, the NIV and TNIV. Yeah. They liked it. Um, and go figure. Um, so anything that they liked um, was unacceptable and yeah. a threat. We're going to take our ball and go home because we're not going to play with you. Well, it, it was more like we're going to take your ball and go home is really what it was. Yeah, that's um, my ball in your hand. Give me my ball back. No, it's not. That's the God's word. It's not your ball. Yeah. Right? So it again, it's, you know, it was very vicious. Um, these were mostly complementarians. Um, but, I mean, interestingly, and we'll go through some of this maybe, um, they came up with a lot of really cool... These were um, people that were very, did very much care about um, getting down to what the biblical text actually was trying to communicate. And mm-hmm. they made adjustments. So a lot of these complementarians uh, made adjustments to how they understood a trans- the key translations in Bible passages. They thought, for instance, were thoroughly teaching that, for instance, women couldn't teach men. Um, so Philip Payne, for instance, gave them a bunch of evidence that they should um, understand, uh, what was it, uh, the First Timothy passage, instead of doing authenteo as exercise authority, he showed them that they really should think in terms of assume or usurp authority. And they looked at the evidence, and they thought very carefully, and they changed their mind. Mm-hmm. They didn't change their mind on everything he, he wanted, but especially, I think, um, it got into some of the, was it gendered language actually in uh, chapter three. Yeah, I think. one Timothy three, the the insertion of masculine pronouns. Yeah, so I think he they didn't quite if I remember correctly, they didn't we can look that up later, didn't quite go along with him on that, but they did with, with that. And yeah, so they, this this shows that, you know, again, every committee is gonna have its um, blind points and it's, especially since they don't have, you know, many women on their committee, they had some, so that's already an openness. Um, and they were able to look at what their opponents were saying. Um, or people that were theologically opponents in other respects, and say, hey, these people have good um, biblical evidence. We're going to adjust how we represent it here. Mm-hmm. And we'll deal with the theology later. <laughs> so the, the controversy essentially boiled down to a disagreement about translational methodology that metastasized yeah. into a, we might call, a political activity that basically forced the TNIV to go out of business. And it's not I'm not willing to say that the ESV succeeded in that sense because I think Zondervan and others capitulated to the mob. Yeah, they did. Um, and it's one of those where I liked the TNIV when it came out, and yeah. I had no problem with it as a complementarian. And so it's one of those where translation in a lot of ways, especially as it relates to the Southern Baptist Convention, is often, they say, you know, we're doing God's word, we're doing this, we're translating. It's like, no, you're, we're not even talking about translation anymore or translational differences. We're talking about what is acceptable in, in uh, an English language discourse. And the fact that they are willing to basically go that route indicates that this is not about God's word. This is about preserving an ideology. And this, that's, where the, that's where I think the ESV and the SPC has ultimately failed because instead of trying to translate God's word, they have basically politicized God's word. Well, I wouldn't say it so sharply like that. I would say I that they genuinely, in many respects, wanted to translate God's word. Um, and again, I think they've done some really good stuff as well. The thing is... Um, I think their hubris also has um, functionally distorted aspects of it, and I don't want to overstate this because um, I think you can read. I think you can read an ESV and still come to an egalitarian reading or a different understanding. I, I think there's enough. I I don't want to overstate it and say like, no, you just won't be able to see it. It's hopelessly distorted. You'll never know what's being said. Well, you can know Jesus through reading the ESV, and you could probably know egalitarianism yeah. through the ESV if you're willing to read beyond the ESV and be more engaged with scholarship. Well, not just you don't need the scholarship either, though. I mean, yes, 
You do, but in terms of getting, um, an, I'd say, an accurate understanding of what's being communicated, um, certain translations will sometimes make it harder, but you can still read in context. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that. But here's some of the hubris, um, and this gets into... So I made a very cheeky um, blog post that you can find on the split frame of reference um, back in the day um, called the ESV, the new inspired version. Um, I won't read it all. Um, it's just, it's pretty snarky. But basically, remember how um, we were telling you how they wanted to be essentially the... The English, the, King James the English was. Standard Version? Yeah. And it's kind of like a grandiose title that seems to reflect what the um, King James did. And King James was the authorized version because it was done by a king and the authority of a church that was um, also tied to a political realm. Um, so they kind of made themselves the self-appointed before they even got started and basically succeeded functionally by viciously attacking and in many ways inaccurately the they're, you know, the TNIV. When complementarians say other complementarians are wrong about this, you know you've got something interesting. And here. again, what they did, though, was to frame the debate as though it was a feminist agenda, which it was far from that. But that's how they framed the debate, and they did it successfully. People mm -hmm. listened, and they didn't go with an open mind when they heard. They didn't mm -hmm. want to hear both sides. They got basically radicalized, I think, in terms mm -hmm. of having their religious um, sentiments, you know, risen up. And anyway, so here's, here's what they said. And this got, so this, okay, there, there was like huge, people were not happy about this. Everyone so, was not happy about this. So basically the ESV people were pretty pleased with themselves. You know, they successfully in their minds derailed the TNIV. Not really. We'll get to that. And, you know, they decided to relish in their victory. So they said, in making these final changes, the Crossway Board of Directors and the Translation Oversight Committee thus affirm that their highest responsibility is to guard the deposit entrusted to you, 1 Timothy 6.20, to mm. guard and preserve the very words of God as translated in the ESV Bible, to do so in full awareness of the fearful responsibility that the sacred text entails. Wait, well, hold on. So this is the ESV putting this in public. That's why I called this post the new inspired version. Okay, so this is something ESV folks are actually saying about. Yes, okay, all yes right. it's quoted. You'll, you'll see it. I, I put in big le obnoxious lettering. So to understand like that this can be... I didn't understand font back then. I still don't. But to understand that this can be accomplished only in complete dependence on the Lord's grace, mercy, strength, providence, and wisdom. Piety, piety, oh so much piety. I know. Yeah, get your For Bible the, out of my mouth. Okay. <laughs> For the glory alone of our triune God... Okay, it goes on. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... Thank you, period. Thus, with the work of translating the ESV Bible now completed, we would give our work back into the hands of the Lord for him to use and to bless and to accomplish his purpose. Sorry, Isaiah 55, 11, for the sake of his church and the gospel to the ends of the earth, Acts 13, 47, knowing that the word of the Lord remains forever. The ESV of the Lord remains forever. First Peter 1, 25. So, okay, that's interesting. So a lot about the word of the Lord remaining forever, never changing, all this stuff. You know, never mind what the, I know, RSV is, and then the ESV off of the RSV, which I'm going to guess the Church of England did not, did not and basically um, run the ESV committee. I'm just going to say. I, it seems a lot like, I don't know, maybe James Dobson, Wayne Groom did, and some others from that narrow group. Anyway, yeah. so based off of all that, the timeless gospel, the, you know, word of God never changing and guarding the deposit entrusted to you, they say, it is within the framework of this commitment then that we are pleased to provide the following list of the final changes to the ESV Bible text, thereby establishing the permanent text of the ESV Bible, unchanged forever. <laughs> wow, that, 
I don't think even my King James only his friends would go that far. Yeah, so um, wow, people were endlessly mocking this, and deservedly so. This is hubris. Yeah, um, Scott McKnight has something on it. I mocked it too because you just—I don't know—it's just so grandiose. Like sometimes it's so self-serving and self-centered that, like, I can imagine if here we go. Yeah. I write my own translation of the Bible, and I'd love to do that someday of the New Testament. I would never dream of saying anything like this. Like the sheer like non-humble attitude in presenting this is our attempt at accurately representing God's holy word to us. But oh, the piety of this! Oh my gosh! Yeah. Like, it's like sticky sweet. And but here's the thing: like, water. don't suffer, don't don't suffer fools. Like, and here's what I mean: people make themselves foolish. Like, at the end of the day. ESV is a good, it's a good translation, okay? Like, we're going to say that, like, it's fine. Like, you can read it. I have an ESV. Um, I go through different Bible versions um, almost every other year. Like, for a while I was reading the ESV, and that's why I kept reading it on here. But it was annoying with gender um, passages. But, you know, I did it anyway. So, that said, at the same time, like, sometimes you got to laugh to keep from crying. Because... Uh-huh. The thing is, this was like a vicious campaign that destroyed a lot of good work of the TNIV. And really, there was like, these people went after the character of these um, translators, even people that were in their own camp, um, mm-hmm. because they were so given to their own like grandiosity and um, unable to basically, uh, let's just say, I think they were so threatened by the egalitarian movement that... They weren't able to see the merit of the people that disagreed with them, even within their own camp, mm-hmm. and painted their characters and intentions in such a way that was inaccurate. And they won the day in many ways over that. Well, they won the battle, but I'm not certain at this point that they've won the war. Yeah, especially with that statement. So they did um, They did some retracting. Um, well, you have to. Yeah, they did. So they realized, like, oh, wait, maybe we should keep um, making corrections out. You know, and not have such grandiose claims about, you know, Our, this this yeah. is God's standard version, basically. Okay, that's my gloss. But here, okay, so I mean, contrast this with the NIV statement. They appeal to something in, um, so they appeal to Second Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. Did they use that to say, like... And our NIV, you know, best preserves for all eternity. This God perpetuity, the NIV. Yeah. yeah. No. So here's what they say: It's to showcase the importance of it being. And I'm not quoting, by the way. To showcase them. I'm not quoting from like the NIV in particular. Maybe it's a loose quote. To show the importance of it being able to be read and understood, and the vital task of it translation. So that's a very loose quote, but that's what they basically say they want. That's what they want to showcase. Um, something that's understandable and task for translation. So all scripture is God breathed. So we're going to take this task, ongoing task of translation, very seriously. And it's worthwhile to point out as well, just to be fair. This the ESV, like we'll say, the derp statement uh, probably wasn't made by the commentators or the com- uh, the translators or the commission. Uh, uh, the derp statement. Yeah, Let's because see. there there is the possibility that Lifeway or the publisher decided to do it, and that would be a different statement from. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's published by, let's see. The Crossway Board of Directors. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, the Board of Directors, like, let's see. Who did the derp statement? We need to find this. Well, it says, in, in making these final changes, it just says right up there. Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah, Crossway Board of oh, Directors. Oh, never mind. I was wrong. The Crossway Board of Directors and the Translational Oversight Committee. Yep, thus there it is. Lingered right. them. Yep. All right, so I, I, I rescind my olive branch, but... 
Yeah, so, so okay. it's sometimes, honestly, sometimes it is that bad. And, like, I mean, if you let, if you try to, like, does no one any favors to, like, pretend somebody that's grandiose and making silly mistakes or doing evil things out of it aren't grandiose. And, again, I think it's okay to laugh at the grandiosity, but also acknowledge, you know, where it's good and um, also think, you know, they don't have to stay there. Maybe they'll get better in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. Just because someone makes a dumb statement doesn't mean they're in perpetuity going to be making dumb statements. Yeah, and it also doesn't mean that we dismiss everything, all their translation decisions, you know, or dismiss it completely. Like, it's tainted. Everyone burn your ESVs. No, I, like, think, no. I think their rendering of John 1's, John's prologue and John 1, 1 to 18 is really good. Yeah. And all that sort of stuff. And so you can become an egalitarian or an Orthodox Christian or an Evangelical Christian or a Liberal Christian just by reading the ESV. Yep. Just, you know, know you're going to have some hurdles to jump if you want a more accurate translation of the Greek stuff yeah. when it comes to gender. And I don't even think the ESV is necessarily the worst one in the whole world either, so... No, that's true. Yeah, so um, I think we should go into some of the contested verses. All right. Um, so here's the three that we're going to just focus on. Um, I'll, I'll go through, because it's a little bit more, and I do a lot more, obviously, my dissertations in First Timothy... Oh my goodness. Oh, our cat is losing his mind. He's got, he's a friend out there. His cat friends come to visit him now. So I count. So his best friend is Cow, which is a very friendly, also orange kitty uh, with cow patterns um, and a very unique looking face. Yeah, it looks like a mouse. Yeah. And he always greets us and he's just super friendly and nice um, and easygoing. And then there's this like little adorable black and white cat that... Barkley absolutely loves. They were, there were some boundary, like putting up some boundaries earlier. Um, but I don't know. He sometimes meows and cries if that cat leaves and he wants him to come back. Mm -hmm. And then there's two others. There's a white cat with like, um, that has like claimed our couch. That has uh, one um, blue eye and one green eye. And then there's Binks, who's a black cat. So Fluffy black cat. Yeah. Those are his friends and they meet him by the window and they hang out. So he's got friends. So anyone who wants to be his friend, you can come over and be friends with him. But no, he's got lots of cat friends. So if you see, if you hear yowling or like, I don't know, some screen or like blinds like swaying, that's Yeah, because I'm not editing this out at this point. It's too cute. Yeah. Hey, come over here. There you go. He's coming over here. All right, Allison, lead us into the controversy about the... Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're going to go through First Timothy 2. Um, Nick's going to cover Junian Romans and First Corinthians 11.10. All right. All right. So for the translation... And what, which ones are, which ones better and which ones are worse, according to Nick and I. Mm -hmm. um, I would recommend, and I'll go through why um, soon. For 1 Timothy 2, I'd recommend you read the CEB, the Common English Bible, for 2, 1 through 10. I think that's very good. So verses 1 to 10 in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Yes. Common English Bible. Okay. And then actually... Oh, and I, I was surprised at this conclusion of mine. Uh, for 2, 11 through 15, I would recommend the King James Version and the NIV together. Okay. On the worst end, I would say it's the NASB and the ESV. On a personal note, overall reading, I think... So if you were to ask me, Allison, what Bible should I get to study from? Uh, I don't know that I would come down on just one, but I'd ask you some questions on where you're at. But I would say overall, I would recommend uh, going through the NASB and the NIV and supplement with the CEB. But in this case, so 
why do I think the CEB, the King James Version, and the NIV are the best ones? So first, um, for the CEB uh, 2, 1 through 10, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read, I'm going to read to you how they translate this beginning part. And notice that the, well, maybe I should, maybe I'll just wait on that because the ESV, the NASB and others, they have so many like he, 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 that is just wrong. So the, in, in a nutshell, um, they accurately translate anthropos, which is humanity, not male, humanity. That is the, I would say the closest one for one in Greek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they translate it as basically all people, humanity, things like that. And they do that consistently. They do it for, um, so first of all, then I ask that requests, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then later so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life. So in all complete godliness and dignity. And this is right, isn't it? Pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And it goes into, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a payment to set all people free. Yes. So even in the section with Jesus, it's the same thing, anthropos. So they, they translate it consistently and they translate it closest to the one-to-one. And it's great. It, it's written in very beautiful, simple English. And I skipped around a little bit. The King James Version and the NIV for 2, 11 through 15. Through 15. Um, For the section on authenteo, uh, the section that says uh, something like, I do not permit a woman to, and I'm just going off the cuff, teach nor uh, authenteo a man, they put in assume or usurp authority, not exercise authority. So very good translation decision. Uh, Go look, go back and listen to our other section on our other podcast on First Timothy and you can know all the reasons why. Hmm. Also, interestingly, the King James Version preserves the weird grammar in verse 15. So I love the weird grammar. And again, maybe that's why I like some of the other translations um, that people don't like because it's awfully wooden. I think this is one that needs to be kept in its more wooden state. Um, Let me go ahead and get it for you. They say, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So she, it's singular, yep. And then switches to they, plural. Yep. Um, so many translations try to harmonize it and make it the same. It's not. <laughs> um, so I love them for that. Uh, both uh, the King James Version and NIV have saved in there. So, and she shall be saved um, for them in childbearing. Yes, it's the word soteria. It's salvation. Uh, keep it. Don't change it to preserve or other things that it's not. Um, to try to make sense of it, but I can see why they other translations might try that. And interestingly, um, even though I think the NASB is horrible for this passage, um, I like that the NASB puts the for the childbearing. So yeah. they have the article there. And I think it's best translated saved in, yeah. So you can just, if you keep that. Both also, so King James Version and NIV um, preserve the therefore or clear connection between two one through eight and verse nine on, which is nice. And so I'm also cheating a bit because I'm going a little further up. Other translations disconnect it from the section that refers to uh, men and women. They'll oftentimes disconnect it from what comes later. So I like that. And why I really don't like the CEB for 2, 11 through 15, it translates, it, it translates that last verse as um, safely instead of um, saved. So 
Um, women will be, you know, brought through safely um, through childbirth. No, that's the same thing as preserved, basically. It's, I don't think that's the sense. Hmm. Um, and yeah, anyway, it's trying to be a little more close to Soteria, but not quite. It, it's really telling you something else in English. I don't like that it makes also that they make a decision for you. Um, and Nick maybe disagreed with me, at least from before, on the CEB for this. Um, I don't like that it made a decision for you that it's not, instead of a generic woman or man, it's wife or husband. So the terms can mean either either one. They decide for you that's wife or husband. So Although don't other translations that say woman or man deciding for you as well? Um, I don't think so, because I think woman or man is the more broad category, and I think you should pick the more broad category. And the more specific one is a lot more narrowing. I so just, what no. I would do is keep the more broad one. Um, don't decide for people. But the thing is, there's still that impression. So I would just footnote the wife or husband bit. So, But yeah, I mean, the way when you read the other translations, you can go, well, what does it mean, a woman or man? And some people come to weird conclusions about ontology that are unwarranted. Um, and they can do that with wife or husband. But if you read it as wife or husband, you get a very particular understanding of what how the passive should be understood, that I just don't think that interpretive decision should be made for you. Um, and maybe there's a better like alternative that we haven't thought of. But anyway, between those two, I would go with woman or man. So that's why I say no. Um, on the positive um, for that section where some say exercise authority, some say usur usurp or assume authority, um, the CEB also says to control, which is good. Yep. Good one. Getting us away from the idea that the word itself means authority or something like yeah, that. Yeah, which it doesn't necessarily. And Cynthia Westfall pointed that out at the CBE conference. Mm -hmm. um, also, I like that they say um, she must be a quiet listener rather than um, you must be quiet. Silence. Because, it again, that gets into the idea of, like, what's being said. Is he telling, you know, women shouldn't talk, period? Or is it very particular? Especially with the above, con you know, context in... Uh, the early part of chapter two that we may all lead, you know, peaceful and quiet lives. Um, that idea, um, and I'm just reading, actually I was reading from the ESV on that one section, but that's getting into what they preserve, I think, saying a quiet listener. Also, I like that they keep the singular and then move to the plural. Mm. So very cool. Um, good on UCEB. Um, unfortunately, I hate it also because they say, but a wife, no, but singular will be brought safely, no, through childbirth, if they, good, both, no, they both. So they've just like, again, made an interpretive decision for you. And they're ref they, it seems like they're trying to refer back to husband and wife. Um, so no, 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 no. So that's why I don't like um, about the CEB and what I like about it. Um, the worst, the NASB and the ESV. Okay, both inserts man instead of anthropos for verses four through five. The NASB does it entirely, and so the NASB is probably following, and I think the, if I'm remembering, the RSV does that too. It's probably just going off of the old generic man. I think so. And not, I wouldn't read too much into it, just archaic language. The ESV is kind of making a conscious choice though, because they curiously and inconsistently only do verses four through five. Uh, you know, let me let me go ahead and read it, what they do. It's just, it's a little bit weird um so you remember with the ceb how they had all people humanity uh t -t -t -t. so here's the esv interesting and they've they've suddenly switched it to 
correctly, something that's more gender inclusive. Hmm, ESV. Huh. Feminist agenda? Okay. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, uh, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Good job. And then skipping ahead, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Good. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people, good, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Whoa. The man, Jesus, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Weird. Because all of that is anthropos. So all they're railing about how the TNIV has an agenda for switching, number one, to something more gender inclusive. They just did it, and rightly so, because it's anthropos. So even by their own reasoning, it's a lot more Mm one-to-one. So good. But then they strangely do not translate the anthropos between God and men and the man Christ Jesus. Suddenly that becomes masculine. Very weird. So there we go. So they're basically giving you an incorrect emphasis um, impression. And I've actually heard this quite a bit from random people I've debated. And I've gotten some good results when I point out it's actually not trying to make a statement or an emphasis here. It's actually anthropos. Hmm. Um, One person was very angry, but that was just one person. Most people are actually quite excited because they're like, wow, that's very interesting. Also, I think the ESV softens the connection between um, verses 7 and 8. Um, they, it's just more softened. They say, I desire then instead of therefore. The RSV does that too. So, I don't know. They also add um, uniquely to likewise for the women. They also put also. So, makes it sound just slightly more like uh, instead of saying, uh, like the CEB translates in the same way when he comes to the section for the women. Meaning that it's basically all applicable. You know, it's in the same way. Likewise, it, it makes it seems like almost like he's translate, just giving you an additional thought instead. But it's a very subtle thing, and it's a little iffy on that. So, mm. also they they select the term exercise authority. No, you know, look at our old uh, podcast for that. The NASB says a woman must must quietly receive instruction. Uh, no. But the ESV does good. Let a woman learn, dot, dot, dot. What comes later, maybe not so well. The NIV completes it uh, as in quietness, which is a nice also translation. Mm -hmm. Um, So that gets back to the understanding of what that term actually means. So anyway, um, a woman must quietly receive instruction makes it appear that's, I think, an imperative, which it's not, rather than let, I don't know. It's just, it's a little, let's see. No, it is an imperative. It is an imperative. Sorry, this one's the imperative. Okay. Okay, let me go back. Um, Overall, I have a critique of the ESV that they make a lot of this section look like it's imperative. The one verse that is in the imperative, this one, a woman must quietly receive instruction. The way that they decide to bring it about makes it seem a lot more... Passive? I would say a lot more passive and a lot more male authority centered Mm -hmm. rather than something that the entire church does. So the ESV says instead, let a woman learn. So that retains the imperative, mm-hmm. which is really good. And I think, at least in the beginning, you know, kind of keeps more of the sense. And then the NIV, I think later says in quietness, which is a lot better than kind of this understanding that women are passive receptacles of male authority rather than doing anything for themselves. Okay, and I'll finish up here. 
Um, the NASB tries to smooth out verse 15 by making both the plural and adding preserved instead of saved. No. Um, but they keep the article the, which makes me happy. <laughs> and then also the ESV um, does well because it keeps the she and they and saved in there. So again, it's not the most horrible thing ever, but it's also, I think, one of the worst translations for that passage. Yeah, and, and looking at Romans sixteen seven in the case of Junia, there's uh, two questions that usually come up in English translation. Usually, it's her name: is this a male or a woman? A man or a woman? And also, what is the relationship between uh, this person to the apostles? And so, um, I think the I think the Common English Bible and uh, actually the King James get it right because. Um, they both recognize that this is a woman's name, and there's even no footnote because it's not a disputed fact anymore at this point. Ever since Jewett and others have basically done their own homework on this, we've not found a single male junia or junius. There's just no evidence for it. Yeah. And so it is a figment of chauvinistic imagination, as Robert Jewett calls it. And you can tell because complementarians usually have shifted on that point, and they're arguing, they argue about the second point, and that's the question of... And Jewett's more inflammatory, by the way. Yeah, Jewett's a lot more inflammatory. So He's, we're he, not necessarily saying it's all chauvinism. Yeah. Uh, and so you have the... So, but you have the NASB that actually uses Junius in the main text, with Junia as a footnote, and the ESV uses Junia uh, in the main text, but Junius in a footnote. The fact that there is a footnote in either one of these translations means this is not serious. This is not, basically, you, there's so much literature written on this point that reinforces it from separate sources. So you have really conservative scholars writing on this. You have people like Richard Servin, who's a linguist and a classicist, writing about Junia. Basically, and, it's a tip-off that there's a controversy here. Yes. It's a, and uh, and then you have progressive scholars like Bernadette Bruton and others who basically go, no, this is a female name. Every single, all the evidence we have suggests it's a female name. And church history indicates that it's a female name as well. So both strands like that. And so basically, this is a, a woman's name. And the fact that the NSB puts a male name here and the ESV footnotes Junia with a male name uh, is basically a tip off that this they've not. Basically, there's a, a, an interpretive bias here or rather a theological bias, not an yeah. interpretive bias. Uh, the KJV gets it right, Junia. The NIV gets it right, Junia. And CEB get it right, Junia. Um, the second part is, uh, are they prominent among the apostles or are they... An apostol or are they people that are known to the apostles, right? One clearly puts them within the realm of apostleship, and another basically says they're missionaries that the apostles know. Uh, for lack of a better word, uh, the CEB doesn't even put a uh, footnote there because I think just grammatically, and most complementarians actually affirm this point, Thomas Schreiner, Douglas Moo, basically say uh, they are prominent among the apostles, they just opt for a less formal or watered-down view of apostle to kind of get around that or to, to try and make sense of that within their paradigm. Um, the uh, New American Standard Bible actually gets it right. My fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, so they don't even have a footnote for that, which is weird because they are very, they, they got Junius wrong or Junia wrong, but they got this right. The ESV um, actually just puts, and this is something I found very shocking when I found out earlier today. They have, they are well known to the apostles and they have a footnote. And I'm like, okay, so they choose a very, minimal interpretive slant that has recently been argued within the past decade yeah uh based on grammatical rules that were not present basically they're made up grammatical rules yeah. in our opinion yeah 
uh, and basically they're well known to the apostles. And the footnote, I'm like, oh, maybe they actually go and say whatever other English translation usually has said, uh, what or uh, esteemed or a uh, uh, prominent among the apostles. Maybe that's the footnote. No, it's just messengers. They basically oh, say apostles could be messengers, <laughs> and so they don't even acknowledge the controversy, the fact that they that two articles have basically been written by the same guys. Uh, to get this point across that these are not among the apostles they are well known to the apostles this is a modern new thing and Pauline use of apostle too is not as messenger or if you look at how the preposition n or in is used even in Romans 16 alone it's not used in this way at all and so it's one of those not even acknowledging that they've created a debate where there is no debate they assume that it's fine to just put it in here without even footnoting the fact that they are doing something entirely new in the history of English translations. So while they get Junior right... It deserves a footnote that basically says, oh, and here's another, here's here's the other standard perspective. Yeah. And maybe even we disagree, though, because of this, this. Yeah, and there are certain translations that will put that. You know, certain mm-hmm. translations are big on footnotes. But the fact Like that, the NASB, which yeah. is why I love them. Yeah, the NASB <laughs> doesn't even have a footnote there because... I know, and the NASB fails me, too. Yeah. And so the KJV gets it right, who are of note among the apostles, and the NIV gets it right, uh, although they they do have a footnote saying, or are esteemed by. Uh, And so based on all the lexical work I can look at, based on ancient context of how they use certain words, the CEB and um, the KJV are the most accurate translations for Romans 16.7. Everything else either mixes it, like the NASB, or just gets it, or mixes it like the ASV, and the NSB, or just gets it flat wrong. By the way, I hope you find this hilarious. Um, we do not recommend people... I mean, it depends, again, for use, but the King James Version is horrifically out of date in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the persecuted Baptists. Nick keeps returning to the persecuted Baptists Baptist, um, later. Like but uh, Puritans initially, but... Uh, so, <laughs> nonetheless... Think about this, an outdated translation still got a lot of these nuances correct. A translation not, quote, influenced by modern feminism or egalitarianism got this right on both points. Yeah, and I don't remember correctly. Um, Don't they have domineer for instead of... For instead of exercise authority? They have domineer or domineer or usurp. I'll I'll pull it up right now. Let's see. I'll pull it up right now yeah. because we do it live. I, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority yeah, over there we men, go. but to be in silence. Yeah, there so we go. even they get the negative connotation correctly. Yeah, so interesting. So again, here's again another strategy. So don't look at all of this as absolutely like the sky is going to fall, you know, because there's, you know, certain biases in translation. Again, these are very subtle. Um, and I'll get to why you shouldn't like freak out too much over the ESV. Um, after we told you to freak out, sort of. No, not really. But um, the thing is, these are pretty good translations, nonetheless. And you can still, especially when you, in this day and age, you can compare. Mm-hmm. You can compare and contrast different Bible versions. Yeah. And so that's Romans 16 in a nutshell. The Common English Bible and the King James Bible are accurate on uh, Junia's gender and status of apostle, uh, at least as I understand them. Um, and yeah. it's not just me and another way of thinking about it too and this is a separate point but I think it's relevant is if you go to the early church fathers and you look at how they use language yes. they don't have anything to gain by capitulating to modern feminists <laughs> Yeah. in fact many of them were not modern feminists many of them were pretty misogynistic but when they basically can look at the text and go oh yeah Junia was an apostle and she was an outstanding apostle and this was a crazy and great wonderful woman I kind of look at modern complementarians and go Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Like, this guy was far more sexist than you'll ever be. 
you know, assuming you're sexist. But also, like, he had nothing to gain, and he knew what the text said. Yeah, and, and he's for, willing to go there. Yeah, and for this, like, um, Scott McKnight has a very good brief mm-hmm. um, book on Junia. Um, and if you want something really in-depth and absolutely nerdy and highly technical, um, I think it's William J. Epp? Eld- Eld- Eldon J. Epp. There we go. His Junia book. Um, yeah. Robert Jewett's work on Junia and his Romans commentary is really good. Um, Richard Balcom and his Gospel Women has an entire chapter on Junia and Joanna, which is magnificent. And you can find a few articles in Priscilla Papers on that point specifically. Yeah. And so that's that's Romans 16 in a nutshell. And now another one that gets oddly goofed up. Well, well really quick, sorry. Um, is the sky going to fall if you don't know that Junia is an apostle? No, you could look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Galatians 3.28, Jesus' treatment of women. And even if you read Junius in your Bible, you probably don't know if, like, if you're just randomly reading and don't know anything. You probably don't know if that's a male or female name to begin with. Well, if you read the footnotes, you do. Yeah, on certain translations. Uh, ESV or NASB. Yeah. yeah. The translations so, were I'm just saying, about. like, it's not the end of the world, and it doesn't mean all of egalitarianism, like, goes up in, in flames. No, we, you know, it's it's one of those things. If Junia is not an apostle, I still have all these women that make my point for me. Yeah, and um, that's in that very chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and basically, the only person that has a problem with Junia being a woman and an apostle are people that don't think women can be apostles or leaders in the church. And so it's one of those kind of questions. So moving on to another contested verse is 1 Corinthians 11.10, which reads, uh, well, depending on which translation you use, I'll... I'll because of this, a woman or wife, depending on your translation, should have authority over her head because of the angels. And the best part about this is a lot oh, of these translations get this right because they all recognize and can agree on the phrase because of the angels. I know. The, the most weird part of the New Testament, although I think this is basically just human messengers. We know that's what it says. Yep. Do we know what that quote means? No. No idea. Well, I mean, there's lots of theories, but... All right. And so with the NASB and the C and the ESV... Um, they they insert a phrase, and the NASB is uh, honest about this because they put put it in italics. Uh, the NASB for this verse reads: Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of a symbol of is in italics of authority on her head because of the angels. And the ESV sim, uh, similarly says that's why that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. They don't actually put it in italics. Yeah, the Bible nerds that that are NASB are biased, but they really are committed to telling you quote what the text says, but trying to help you nonetheless. So that's why they put it in italics. Yep. So they're telling you that they're adding something. So they're, they're showing their hand, which is actually quite cool. I which think. Which I like. I'm actually very impressed. They they and that's why I chose the NASB for this verse because I think that's a very honest. Um, an open perspective on this. The ESV, not so much because they just kind of assume that's what the word means. But in Greek, to not to nerd out too much, you have, okay, so you have diatautas. So for this reason, that's a standard rhetorical marker. Uh, Ophele, uh, hegune, which is basically a woman ought indicating agency already. Um, Ekain, which is a uh, echo, so it's an infinitive. To have authority upon her head. Upon the head, but uh, head is in the feminine case. So you have a woman have should have authority on her head because of the angels. And what this refers to for a lot of people, the fact that... And that's very ambiguous, by the way. It's a very ambiguous, but in, uh, in Greek... Does she have a giant crown on her head? Yeah. <laughs> and the question then becomes, um, uh, what is authority? Because authority doesn't have a passive connotation. It's always active. And Gr- Gordon Fee has shown that point. So what we have here, uh, in, in conjunction with the verb to... Uh, must have or, or or ought to have uh, is in the active tense uh, or active mood. 
active voice. Wow, I'm tired. Uh, basically indicating this is the woman's job to exercise authority upon her own, her head, which is herself. Yeah. And I think, given my understanding of kephale, this is the head is representation of herself as a whole person. As the head being the prominent part of the body, the thing that sends on your neck, represents the whole body. Basically the whole person in mind. So it's, yeah, it's the life giver of the rest of the body yeah, too. Yeah. So for an example, just to make this more clear, uh, you have Paul saying... In Romans 12, uh, God will uh, repay upon their heads or heap hot coals on mm. their heads. doesn't mean literally God's going to drop hot coals on their heads, but God is going to avenge them, and the head is the representation of the whole person. That's actually a very common anatomical slash metaphorical use of kephale in almost all the Greek literature I'm looking at right now. And so what we have here is this woman should exercise authority for herself. She has self-determination and agency, and the idea of inserting a symbol of authority implies what symbol is this? And uh, Thomas Schreiner and others thinks this symbol refers to the idea of male headship. And that's kind of what's inferred in this. But the fact that a symbol of is not actually in the text yeah. and rather uh, indicates, uh, and it also seems to assume some sort of veiling, which I think is contested. I think hair is better in here, but that's a separate point. It's also trying to help you know what they're what the translators are trying to do or help you understand a metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, and especially like before, it's kind of ambiguous. Yep. Um, so they're trying to help you out here. And that's what a lot of translation does, not just for gender. And again, it's the sky isn't falling. Like sometimes it's mm -hmm. helpful. Like, and yeah. it's always a weight between functional, what, what's functionally being communicated mm -hmm. versus what is, um, what is word for word, which can actually end up um, distorting meaning. So right. they've decided to help you out here and say, yes, it is um, male headship. Yeah. And that's fine if that's what the text we're teaching, but I don't think it does. But the point is, uh, and the KJV gets it right. For this cause, which is, I hate the, for this reason or this cause, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels, which is a much more literal reading or wooden reading, we should say. But they still get the point. The woman ought to do X, that is, have authority for herself. Authority on her head is a synonym or a synecdoche for her whole person. Which implies agency, which Paul implies all over the place in First Corinthians, especially 7. A woman has agency over her husband's body, and so on and so forth. And so by the idea of inserting a symbol of, yeah. one uh, presents us with the idea of what it... Basically, it forces you to ask a question that's not demanded by the text. Yeah. Because then the person reading this goes, a symbol of what? A symbol of authority. Oh, a symbol of male authority. Yeah. And it basically says the man is the symbol of, you know, because, you know, man or woman came from man. Man is the head of woman. Their understanding of those texts. But if those texts are not to be understood that way, and I would argue they're not, then you have something here where instead of being about woman's self-determination and prophecy and right to self-control and right to act in prophecy, we have her being subsumed under male authority by the implication of a symbol of authority. And that is something, whether they intended to communicate that or not, I don't think the NSB did because they flat out just say this is a symbol of in italics. They're trying to be fair and honest with how they're going with it. Give, nevertheless, give the impression that male authority is the symbol that the woman is under, not her own actualized authority yes. to prophesy. And so that is why, for, for me, I think the Common English Bible, and actually I would say the... Um, the uh, 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 give me one second. I actually I was shocked by this when I saw it. But the King James again? No, no, no. Okay. no. Um, uh, give me one second. I'll pull it up. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the passage as a whole. First Corinthians 11 as a whole. The mm -hmm. NASB actually gets something right. Yes, gets the Bible a lot words. right here. Uh, they say uh, hair and stuff like that. So they, oh, yeah. they insert hair, which I think is right. Um, but uh, verse eight: For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 
for, and so, but they get the idea of origination from yeah, the prepositions and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and the common English Bible does that as well. Man didn't have his origin from woman, ek, the preposition denoting origin, uh, from woman, but woman from man. And man wasn't created for the sake of the woman, but the woman for the sake of the man, which indicates relationality and correspondence and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, so let's just say you were horribly confused by that whole headship and symbol earlier. Um, you read later the Paul's reverse explanation. Um, you're going to see the idea of origination and um, I, I'd say mutuality there, contextually. Well, and the NASB gets verses 11 through 12 largely right too because they, they, they recognize their origination language where they probably get source language. Uh, however, this is the NASB, uh, verse 11, 11, 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. It has his birth is in italics, but it's a necessary inference based on the symmetry of Greek here. Through the woman and all things originate from God or come from God or are from God. And so they recognize, despite their complementarianism, that this is what the text actually says. And yeah. if we're going to help you understand it, we need to play with it. Well, not play with it. We need to bring some stuff out yeah. in order for it to understand. The and they did so rightly in some areas. Yes. Um, like we, we said it was helpful with the hair and some other things. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, they like to put italics and show when they're just trying to help you out. Yep. Um, and again, you don't have to necessarily agree with their decisions, but I, I do like that they tip their hand more. Yeah, and I, and I think what I respect about the NASB, despite my disagreements with them, and I think they are really wrong about Junius, yeah. the fact that they insert uh, or they put it um, in italics indicates they're being open and honest where the yes. debate is and where they need to make a call. And I think that's completely reasonable. Yeah, I have no problem with that. I just think... Or I have no problem with that method. I just have a problem with what you insert. Yeah. And so, but that's where the debate is. Yeah. Um, whereas the ESV gives you no indication of what the actual debate is. They just assume we'll just tell you what it is. Yeah. And um, give the impression that this is probably male headship involved, which I think is the, literally the exact opposite of what Paul's been talking yeah. about. So those are the two verses I think are contested. And the KJV gets stuff kind of right too. And the NIV and stuff like that. But I think overall, I mean, most of the passages you can actually read and get a sense of, okay, this is what's going. It's just that, that insertion of ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, which implies male headship that ESV doesn't even give you any context for. Yeah. So, okay, to summarize, um, the top two, so that the translations that we would suggest per, uh, I guess, passage. So for 1 Timothy 2, I recommend the CEB for the first half. And the CEB is pretty good, I think, overall, too, if you, you know, take out some of the things I was saying, especially with making a decision for wife. Um, that one's pretty good. Um, and the King James is pretty good. And the NIV is pretty good. Mm -hmm. And then Nick, what are, what would you recommend, you know, for the sec, for Junia and then first Corinthians 11, 10? Uh, for Junia, I think the common English Bible and the KJV and uh, the NIV gives a footnote to the outstanding among the apostles their footnote is or or esteemed by the apostles i don't think that's even a debate um there are things that are debated in the gender debate that deserve so it. summary yeah so, so, uh common english bible and kjv for junia and first corinthians 11 um yeah common english bible and yeah i'll just go with the common english bible yeah so the common english bible overall does pretty darn well yep. and surprisingly the king james yep king james holds up pretty well all things considered all right so q a q a all right, so um, I got a really good question um, from someone named Sarah. Said, hi, just saw your tweet about questions for the next Split Frame of Reference podcast. I've been struggling with trust issues and translations ever since I listened to your episodes on 1 Timothy 2. 
To that end, my question is, how do I trust a translation at all in light of the gender passage issues? It's been making me wonder where else the translators might have taken their personal biases into the work. I know no one can completely take out all the biases when they do work like that, but still it's hard to feel like as someone who doesn't know the biblical languages that it's impossible to know what the text is or could be saying. Yeah, um, I, I love that question, and I think it's uh, just very honest, too, in terms of it's hard to be in a position where you there's a whole discussion happening and you don't necess- you can't necessarily... Um, make the same judgment calls off the cuff that someone that has researched it extensively can. And I think it's also, you, you just, it's hard knowing what you don't know. Um, mm. And that actually goes for anyone. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think it's not actually so problematic. So I think if you take out even the ESV, and that's one reason why I liked to use it on this podcast initially, um, other than that was just the um, translation I was using, is contextually, you can understand quite a bit. Um, And again, these are very small things. Uh, So for instance, if you see, number one, um, don't read passages in isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, So much emphasis has been put um, in the evangelical world and scholarly world, I'd say. So evangelical world, oftentimes to our detriment, um, emphasizes single single, uh, verses. Mm Mm-hmm. So what does this verse say? Ha ha, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd say the scholarly world puts so much emphasis on um, atomizing the text and saying that uh, if you just know the precise meaning of this one term. If you know the tense form of this one verb, it changes everything. You will know what it means. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, there's actually debate over, you know, meaning and all that. And um, I I, I prefer the term communicated, uh, but... That's just not how we understand things, I think, in real life. Um, So much is contextual. And just read the text, immerse yourself in it, and a lot of this stuff can be easily teased out. So, you know, you you read 1 Timothy, and that sounds pretty harsh. Uh, A woman shouldn't teach or exercise authority over man, must be silent. Um, Yikes. Well, what's what's Paul been talking about this whole time? Paul's teaching. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Oh, look, and he compared himself, you know, when he was once ignorant and foolish and um, thought he was the best of all, but he really wasn't. And he had no, he had no right really to be um, teaching and leading, but, you know, here, yet he was appointed apostle and, you know, so he's, and he basically lays out hope for others. So that's significant or, you know, consider um, Jesus um, in, we, I talked about this, I think in the bonus episode a little bit. Um, so in First Timothy 2, there's an echo from Mark 10. Um, where, so that section where uh, we were talking about in First Timothy 2 where um, anthropos is used, so humanity. Um, so the human one, Jesus, is the one that gives himself as a uh, ransom for all. Hmm. Um, that goes back to Mark uh, 10, uh, where they actually use many. But the context of what Jesus is saying in there is the disciples arguing over who's the greatest. Hmm. Um, specifically James and John. And um, he tells them, don't exercise authority the way the Gentiles do, who like to lord it over others and stuff. Um, so contextually, that one is actually exercise authority. You know, that's coming, uh, I think it's a variant off of exousia. Uh, and in that sense, section, you know, there's no controversy over that term. And yet it's not a good thing. You know, so mm-hmm. let's just pretend for some reason that it's the same thing here. The meaning's still the same. What do you know? Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, and I use the term meaning, but it, the, the same thing is communicated and you can get that from reading the rest of scripture. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we just have to be comfortable with some nuanced ambiguity too. Um, the other thing I would say too is that other than not needing to worry, because all these translations are pretty darn good and you have enough tools at your disposal um, that you can parse a lot of this out, is that, you know, that's why we dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. And part of that dialogue in a modern era is actually we can we can look at all these different Bible translations. So maybe you don't know the Greek or Hebrew, but maybe you can take out three different translations. So now you know the ESV, mm-hmm. no, which Nick and I don't like. Um, you On know this issue, yeah. Um, the CEB, you know the NIV, um, you know the NASB. You can look at what how all of those um, translate the verse and think to yourself, you know, does do these different translations help me understand what's being said overall if I don't understand something? And we're not talking about just the gender debate here um, anytime. So even if you don't know the Greek or Hebrew, it sometimes helps to know some different options. And then you can kind of look at the context and say, which one matches best? And then talk to people, talk to your pastor, talk to mm-hmm. random people like Nick or I, or, you know, your friends and just, you know, talk about it. Cause ultimately too, like it's about the big picture. And I think it's about, um, you know, developing your relationship with God and um, being formed in his image. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the process of not knowing and some of the ambiguity, you know, that's going to happen. It's not that, you know, it's not a massive problem is is good. So that said, um, I recommend, and I mentioned this book before, that you read Craig Blomberg's Can We Still Believe the Bible? An Evangelical Engagement with Contemporary Questions. Specifically, chapter three, can we trust any of our translations of the Bible? So he's going to lay it out for you pretty well in terms of um, the translational difficulty, along with, you know, all the things that, you know, people get right and what you can do. And he ties it to other key questions like, don't these issues rule out biblical inerrancy next chapter? And, you know, early on, you know, are different copies corrupt? Um, chapter two, wasn't the selection of books for the canon just political? So stuff like that. So it's, it's a good book. Um, read it, and if if anything, just read um, chapter three. Yeah, and uh, I found something that I think might help uh, give some insight into kind of how how a lot of folks think about this. Um, I'm gonna pull it up just to make sense. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay, here we go. That's what it's called. I just forgot the name of the YouTube video. Uh, there's a, a, a there's something to be said too about how people approach these sorts of things and kind of. Uh, just I think it might be helpful just to look at a representation of what uh, a lot of people are saying about English translations and yeah. stuff like that, especially when it comes to apologetics. And so there's this guy, uh, Mike Winger. He's a Christian apologist on YouTube. Uh, smart guy, seems like a nice guy, all that sort of stuff. And he uh, has an issue with translators and gender inclusive language. And I think it might be worthwhile because it has a his view, video has 100,000 views almost. And uh, a lot of folks have passed the video around I've seen. And I think in speaking about the NRSV, he gives a lot of impressions about stuff we've talked about. Yeah. And it might be worthwhile to see where folks are coming from and respond. So just as a, here's a flesh and blood example of uh, someone who disagrees with us and the, the logic and the reasoning and stuff like that. And you can look him up on YouTube. Yeah, the video is on YouTube. It's Mike Winger, uh, W-I-N-G-R. And the video is called, Can I Trust Bible Translations? Evidence for the Bible, PT 17 or Part 17. Yeah, and, and we, we endorse this as a um, sample of a popular opinion, um, but it is not um, very scholarly or no. well-informed in our opinion. No, but point being, um, 
he basically comes to the same conclusions we do that a translation even if it's messed up or he doesn't like it still can give you the word of yeah. god and so him and I, I think at our base conclusion we yeah. agree with him on that but i want to just point this out because i think this is an example of popular uh a popular opinion that needs to at least be engaged with yeah a bit. So this is from about the 35 minute onward in the video when he talks about the NRSV. Uh, and he says, and I, and I typed him out to the best of his ability. Um, there weren't ca uh, subtitles or anything. So bear in mind, this is from my ear to the computer. Uh, so about the NRSV, he says, quote, but there are a couple passages. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 is one in particular. And this is just revisionism at this point. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.2, it is like they purposefully, that is the translators, sort of twisted the translation in order to say there can be female bishops. Instead of saying, quote, how can we accurately represent the text? It was like, we have an agenda, we're just trying to get this out, and that's just poorly translated. So it, that is the NRSV, was accused of being liberally influenced, and it probably was. Uh, this doesn't mean that it's a perversion, it is a perversion, nor does it mean that you don't have the Word of God if you have the NRSV. It just means that in a couple places, it's going to skew... It is going to skew it a certain way that may not accurately represent the original, but the rest of the time is a fairly good dynamic translation, end quote, for him. And so there's a few things, just to kind of mention right off the bat. Um, there's a difference between accusing someone for what they said. Yeah. So, for example, Wayne Grudem and others, we know what they've said on this issue. We, yeah. we read you Lifeway's commentary. We, we gave you the context, you know, James Dobson and yeah. all that. Here, the idea, um, the fact that there's kind of a mind-reading element going on here, instead of saying it's like, we have an agenda, it's like, okay, one, that's kind of poisoning the wall, and it's just an, uh, it's one of those, don't mind-read the people you disagree with unless, it, you know, yeah. it's just not a good tactic. Uh, he doesn't tell us why the NRSV mistranslates 1 Timothy 3.2. It's one of those, well, it says they can be female bishops. It's like, well, that's not what the text really is about anyway. And so it's one of those where you can kind of see a, a disagreement with an exegetical conclusion or translation is not the same as you know, it being mistranslated or having an agenda. Because, for example, the NRSV mistranslates 1 Timothy 2.12 as have authority over. So hard to accuse them of bias when they botch that one, in my opinion. And so, uh, and just the third unit, I can talk about this real quick. Uh, we have an episode entirely on 1 Timothy 3 in that section. Uh, so quick question, does he not cover... Um, why he thinks it's mistranslated at all nope. in that whole thing? I, I read you exactly what he said. But like, does he come back to it later nope. in the? Not that I saw. Okay. Okay. So yeah, yeah. And, and so basically, the question then becomes: What is the Greek idiom for one woman man, as it's woodenly translated, uh, actually mean? Because according to several complementarians, like Thomas Schreiner's conceded this, Douglas Moose conceded yeah. this. Um, it mean, or even Wayne Grudem to some extent has conceded this point. Uh, it means to be. It means to be married only once or monogamous. A one-woman man is, a, is an idiomatic phrase designed to communicate, I've only been married once. And it uses a male example. Yeah, that's pretty standard, even in ancient literature. Yeah, yeah. But that, so it's common that it's common in that sense. And so the CEB renders it uh, accurately, I think. Yeah. So the church's supervisor, so again, supervisor, they're common English in okay. it, must be without fault. They should be faithful to their spouse, uh, so, uh, sober, modest, and honest. They should be, show hospitality and be skilled at teaching. And so uh, they make a point, they, they stay true to the original intent of what's actually being said, i.e. faithful to your spouse, spouse, which leaves the door open for female supervisors or bishops or overseers, but that's not what the text is designed to communicate. Anyway, the NSB says an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, so they, they get it, they maintain the idiom, but they don't explain it. And the ESV does the same thing, uh, and so on and so forth. The NRSV essentially says, I just realized I didn't get this right, um... And this is a this is um, and maybe an example where keeping it more wooden actually distorts the meaning. Yeah. And again, this is a well attested understanding. Mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily 
But yeah, it confuses enough people that, yeah. I have enough people that'll jump to this verse in English and tell yeah. me, see, it says one woman, man, therefore... Man, yeah, see? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the NRSV, uh, Mike is art, uh, commenting on, he's not exegeting the text, just commenting on it. Uh, mar- the NRSV says married only once, which is true to the intent of what Paul is communicating, I would argue. And it we see in ancient literature. They have a footnote, so they're intellectually honest and saying... Greek, the husband of one wife or the man of one wife. Yeah, and we're referring to the new NRSV, the RSV, not the RSV, but the new NRSV. Yeah, NRSV, yes. And so it's one of those things where a lot of people will accuse certain translations of bias uh, without foundation. Because, for example, yes, it is true that mainline denominations sponsored and did all the stuff with the NRSV. But if you look at how they trade a lot of the gender text, there's a reason I didn't recommend the NRSV for the gender text. Because 1 Timothy 2.12, they get wrong. They have it as have authority versus usurp or domineer or control. And so it's one of those things, just because there's, quote, liberal influence, whatever that means, I don't know what that means. Yeah. um, It also reflects kind of this knee-jerk reaction that anyone has towards a um, a translation that doesn't give them what they want. Yeah, because sometimes, even if it comes from a certain bent, they'll get it right. And this is why you listen to your opponents, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like, if I'm remembering correctly, the ESV um, translates um, Galatians uh, 3.28 with um, sons, right? Yep, sons. Yeah, use the sons. I like that. Um, other translations use, like, children. We are children, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, no. Like, um, in the context of, you know, there is neither... Um, Let's see, Jew nor Greek, um, slave nor free, male nor female. Uh, in that context, it's saying all of those categories are firstborn sons, yeah. heirs. That's significant. So, yeah, I, I say retur- re- retain the, um, the sonship. Yeah. Because it's, it's doing something. It's putting it on its head. Yep. Um, they get that right. Mm-hmm. Where other ones, you know, maybe they're, they're bent, um, kind of maybe doesn't quite bring that out even yeah. though the idea is still there. Like, children is correct, but if you want to actually get the point Paul is making, that's a radical point. Son of God said to a group of people in Galatians, men and women, slaves and children, hearing that you are a son of God indicates to them not that they are male, but they have the same status together as, as God's firstborn son. son. And wow. it's one of those things. In that context, that is a more radical teaching than saying you are all children of God. Yeah. And so, in, the, in that sense, the ESV gets that right. Um, I think the intent of the CEB or the NRSV with children is correct. I get what you're getting at. But in order to to actually be as radical as Paul is, you need to go more wooden translation with sons. And I made that point from the pulpit as well. And so um, it's one of those things where um, just accusing a translation of bias without merit and when they don't really display a lot of that. Yeah, and bias equals wrong. Yeah. You know, no. Bias does not equal wrong. Yeah. I have a bias. I'm I'm wrong about a lot of things. We are all biased. And here's the thing, like again, the West seems to be preoccupied with being a with objectivity and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other cultural tendencies towards like complete subjectivity and things that, you know, go bump in the night. But I mean, in reality, like humans are subjects mm-hmm. and we're meant to function that way. Mm-hmm. And I think we should be striving towards honesty mm-hmm. and being, you know, understanding what others are communicated, whether mm-hmm. they are inspired writers or whether they are mm-hmm. you or I. Yeah. So. And so just to wrap this up, um, I just don't see that the criticism that Mike as, rep- as representing this view is warranted or even just helpful or accurate. Um, that's not to pick on him because I know there's lots of people that think yeah. like this, um, but I think it's it was actually a pretty well done YouTube video that I think... Um, just botched this one little bit and that's fine because I get things wrong all the time and so just to make the point 
the NRSV is probably correct and what it's intending to communicate via Paul's words, that is a bishop or an overseer, whatever that is, uh, must be married only once. So you can't have multiple you can't have multiple wives or multiple husbands. Well, you'd only have multiple wives. You wouldn't have multiple husbands in the ancient world anyway. Yeah. So that's, Yeah, that's any society anywhere. That's very rare. Mm-hmm. Very. And so point being, monogamy is God's ideal, and that's what Paul suggests. Although, let's be careful in saying that you must, must be married by inserting imperatives here because Jesus was not married, and Paul was not married, and lots of people in the New Testament were not married. And yet there were wonderful servants of God who did great things for the kingdom and led and did stuff like that. So yeah. just to, wanted to make that point, just giving an example of kind of a more popular uh, view on that. Yeah. And we're sorry, this is a long episode and it's very heady and packed. Um, but I mean, sometimes it's going to happen. Yeah. You, we, uh, we nerds looked at gonna a, be nerds. Yeah. You looked at a tough question and shock of shocks. It takes a while to answer. Yeah. So, and it's one of those things too, I've noticed. And I think this is something to be said. A lot of people will get really fussy about a certain view. It doesn't matter what view it is, right? Um, and you give them a hour-long YouTube video that's detailed, or a podcast episode that's detailed, walks through everything, and the response I've seen a lot is, can you summarize it in a Facebook post or in a tweet? Uh-huh. Yeah, tweet, and that's it's, hard. And it's one of those where, one, I just don't like the challenge of that, but also, two, there's something to be said about taking the time to really learn and study, and not come to quick conclusions. In fact, don't come to quick conclusions. Allow yourself to really research, to really read, to be as informed as possible before you pull the trigger on a view. Because it, for, to be honest, it took me probably a year to change my mind on women in ministry. And even then there were gradations there. I still had some sort of like, well, maybe the man has some sort of male headship or some sort of authority. I'm not sure what that looks like because that doesn't seem to make sense, but head seems to mean authority mm-hmm. over. And so it's not as if you just instantly switch and so therefore you're already there. Life is a journey and faith is a journey. Yeah. And cultivate curiosity for yourself. Think about it, reflect on it, read people with whom you disagree. We've got Kostenberger, Schreiner, Grudem, all over our bookshelves you know yeah but we read them yeah and i i want to know what they say you know if they're right about something that's great you Mm -hmm. know i yeah Yeah. and the thing is all this process is formation Hmm. for us you know at the end of the day we're we're not reading the bible so that we understand what you know some ancient people thought when you know at one point when it doesn't impact us yeah yeah like and here's the thing like sometimes it takes us a long time to understand certain passages and that's okay to wrestle through it and it's okay to not know be sure of what something means you Mm -hmm. know or not sure you know i don't know if an egalitarian or complementarian is right on this Mm -hmm. um it that's okay like again Mm -hmm. we can live in there's been certain passages not necessarily in gender but that i just have struggled with that I didn't understand for so long and then later it clicked and that's the mm-hmm. best feeling ever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it doesn't, but the thing is like bring God, bring bring your ambiguity to God and just wrestle through it because again, there's so much that you understand and remember that. Like you're reading it and you're not looking at an unintelligible like bunch of random letters mm-hmm. like that mean nothing. Yeah. Um, you're able to read text, you're able to read the Bible and more or less get the sense of what's being conveyed you're able to do that when someone's talking to you in front of your face most mm-hmm. of the time. You're able to do that with other books. Mm-hmm. And you're it's fine, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I would just I would just go with that. <laughs> yeah. And just be willing to go where the evidence lead and take the time necessary to respect the Bible and this topic or any topic enough to not just look for a simple answer and basically give me a proof text to settle all my woes. Yeah. It's like no, be willing to wrestle with scripture because as Jacob wrestled with scripture gives us a biblical grounding for working through the Bible. Yeah. And it's not always an either or either. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Um, and sometimes something can be wrong, but 
you know, you thinking through it helped you understand other things. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, it's not the end of the world to be wrong either, you know? Yeah, I mean... You're be not... wrong or right well. You're not... You'll be fine. Yeah, be right or be wrong well. Yeah. You know? If you're wrong and you love like Jesus still, like, I don't know. I'm fine with that. That's how life works. And if you're a curious person, eventually you'll find it. Yeah. There's lots of stories about how Jesus wants us to treat others and... Oh, no. <laughs>